it's great to see so many visitors here today and so many returning visitors from uh, long absences. Welcome back, or welcome if it's your first time. Um, my name's John Hall. Um, I'm running the ship today because uh, Taylor is away. Um, Taylor is leading a men's retreat um, over in Alabama. That's where he is today, so we can pray for him as he does that. Um, so yeah, you might see me wearing a lot of hats in this service. Um, let's pray as we open God's word together. Jesus, we love you, we honor you, we worship you. Jesus, you spoke a life-giving word to your disciples on earth and filled their hearts with joy. And we pray, Jesus, that you would do that for us today. We need your word of life spoken over us. We need your word to enlighten us, to make us fall in love with you, to transform us to be like you, and to give us hope for when we get to be with you. We must get in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, so uh, when I was a Christian in college in England, uh, I went away on a retreat. And uh, it was a bit like InterVarsity Focus Week, where a lot of our friends are today. Um, although in my retreat, there was much less sunshine. <laughs> and uh, the speaker on my retreat laid out the essential parts of the gospel of Jesus. So he, he, he described the basic components of the message that people need to know. And he drew them out on a whiteboard and he drew the shape of a diamond. And he said there are four essential parts. And he labeled the four sides of the diamond, incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And then he went on to challenge us that we should be able to explain the life of Jesus to a friend starting with any one of those four sides of the diamond. But as he was saying that, and I was looking at that diamond, I could see right away that one of those four was going to be a big challenge. Uh, one of the four was not like the others. <laughs> I was going to have a really hard time with the ascension, um, because the incarnation of Jesus, I knew about that, because that was the subject of Christmas. That's the mystery of Jesus being born as a baby. It's the subject of special candlelit services, hundreds of songs, thousands of books, thousands of sermons. And the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, well, they were the subject of Easter. And there were even more special services and more songs and more books and even more sermons. But the ascension? Well, at that time, I wasn't sure I could even tell you when that was in the church year. We didn't get any time off school for that, and I couldn't think of a single uh, song about the Ascension or a book about it. And before that retreat happened, I wasn't sure I'd even heard one sermon about the Ascension. But as I thought about it this week, um, it was my job to preach on the Ascension. Um, so I, I realized that that speaker on the retreat was probably right, um, that there are four key events to mention in the life of Jesus on Earth, not just three. And I went back and I looked at the creed that we say together every Sunday, and there they are, four events. So you can look at it right now on the, your service leaflets. Um, it's on page five, and about halfway down the creed, after it talks about who Jesus is, it says, For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. So that's number one, incarnation. Then, for our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. 
to crucifixion. Then on the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures, three, resurrection, and there it is. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father for ascension. And then the creed adds a fifth event that's still to come, that he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. So there's no doubt that the ascension of Jesus is a major part of the Christian faith. But let's be honest, we're not very excited about it. The other three sides of the diamond are wondrous and captivating. Incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, major reasons to get excited. But the ascension, meh. <laughs> and I've been trying to figure out why that is, and I came up with two possible reasons. So the first reason is maybe we're honestly a little bit embarrassed about the ascension. Because even by biblical standards, it's pretty fantastical. So we probably have some tolerance for miracles, right? So we're willing to accept that Christian faith needs some room for the supernatural, even though our culture is still very hostile to anything unscientific. Um, but we will stand up for miracles to some degree because our guy came back from the dead and in a most unscientific way, and that's one of our core beliefs. Uh, if not the core belief of our faith, right? And so if we're going to stretch that far, it's not too much harder to believe in Jesus healing blindness or multiplying loaves and fishes or walking on water. But the idea that at the end of his life, Jesus just lifted off into space <laughs> stretches our tolerance to breaking point. It sounds utterly fantastical. And all the other miracles in the Gospels have elements that are supernatural, but at least they make some sort of sense. They have a plausibility within the story. They have a human dimension that keeps them grounded. And most of the time, they're somewhat small and secretive and with a small audience, and that somehow makes them easier for us to accept. But the ascension just seems kind of showy and flashy and out of character. It's like something out of a Marvel comic. And I think for a lot of us, it's honestly just a bit embarrassing to talk about. So I imagine my conversations with my skeptical friends going a bit like this. So Jesus came back from the dead, did he? Well, where is he now then? Did he die again? Um, no, he, um, he, he went up into heaven. Oh, really? Well, how did he get there? By escalator? No, no, he, um, he, he just um, he, he lifted off from the ground. Like Superman. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> well, that's very convenient, isn't it? It does kind of sound a little overly convenient. So maybe that's part of why we don't talk about the ascension as much, because we find it a little bit embarrassing. So that's one reason. And the second reason is that maybe we find it a little bit sad. Uh, Jesus is gone, and we feel a little bit left behind. We're a bit nostalgic for the days that we read about in the Gospels, and a bit like we wish he hadn't gone. So I had a friend confide to me a couple of weeks ago that he knew that Jesus said it was better that he go away so that he could send us the Holy Spirit, but it really didn't feel better. And maybe we all feel that to a greater or lesser degree, that we wish that Jesus hadn't gone away. And so the ascension, the moment he leaves, doesn't feel like much to celebrate. 
All right, well, I want to speak to both of those feelings of embarrassment and sadness by looking back at the Old Testament, at 2 Kings chapter 2. So it's going to be helpful if you grab a Bible here and look this up. 2 Kings chapter 2 is on page 308 of the Church Bibles. 308. And we're going to read about the, um, the end part of Elijah's life. So you're probably very familiar with the story. We had it just read for us. Um, the great prophet Elijah ended his life by being taken up into heaven on chariots of fire. And uh, his friend and disciple Elisha was left behind on the ground, gazing up at him as he left. Um, so that story starts in verse 9 of 2 Kings chapter 2. Now notice as you look at chapter 12, what Elisha's response was when his master left. Elisha was filled with grief. So in verse 12, he calls after Elijah, My father, my father! And then Elisha tears his clothes, which was his culture's strongest statement of grief and sorrow. It was the kind of thing people did when a family member died. So Elijah was taken up and Elisha was grieved. He was brokenhearted. He had the emotion that we expect to have. So Elisha's awe and wonder at seeing his master taken into heaven didn't displace his deep sense of sadness and loss. So here the word of God legitimizes that emotion. It accepts that it's natural and it doesn't tell us to get over it. There is real loss, but there's more to the story that we need to understand. So as we look at this story of Elijah leaving, we see that it's strikingly similar to Jesus' ascension at the end of his life. Because the pattern is that the master is taken up into heaven and the disciples are left behind. After the departure, the disciples are given a new spirit and then they go and continue the master's work. And they do even greater things. As you read through the story of Elijah, it's clear that he's doing even greater miracles than his master Elijah did. So the story of Elijah gives us Old Testament context for the ascension of Jesus. And that context gives a shape and a point and a purpose and a story to the ascension that helps to soothe our sense of sadness and embarrassment. Because it shows us that the Ascension isn't just a weird add-on to the story of Jesus, like an awkward appendix, a clumsy attempt to tie the story up with a bow. But instead, it happened according to the Scriptures. It was part of the plan from the beginning. Because the Ascension had a precedent in the Old Testament, in the life of Elijah. And another precedent before him in the life of Enoch in Genesis chapter 5. Because Enoch lived a righteous life before God and was spared death because God took him into heaven. So we see the pattern is that this is the proper end to a righteous life, according to the Old Testament. And this exit of Jesus into the clouds proves that he never had to die again. He lived a righteous life. So the ascension also has a purpose that's underlined by the story of Elijah. Because the master leaves in order that the disciples can be empowered to carry on his work. And that purpose is exactly the same in the life of Jesus. He taught his disciples in John chapter 15, I'm going away, 
But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you will also bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. That's John chapter 15. So the story of Elijah helps us with the ascension because it gives it a context and a precedent and a purpose. So now flip forward in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, right at the end of Luke's Gospel. It's on page 885 of the Church Bibles, 885. And we're going to look at the very last sentence of the whole book of Luke. It starts there in chapter 24, verse 52. It's right after Jesus ascends into heaven. The last sentence of the Gospel of Luke, it says, And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple, blessing God. So that's how the disciples felt after Jesus' ascension. Notice that their emotion is totally different from Elisha's after Elijah left. Because Elisha was full of grief, but the disciples are full of joy. They had great joy. So we notice at the end of Jesus' life that our emotions, as we read and retell the story, are actually totally out of sync with the disciples' emotions who lived it at the time. Because when Jesus gets crucified, we nod and say, noble death. And they run away and abandon him. And then Jesus is raised to life, and we celebrate while they still wrestle with fear and doubt. We've been hearing about that in the past couple of weeks. And then Jesus ascends into heaven, and we scratch our heads and look confused, and they leap for joy. Um, so our emotions are, are really out of sync with theirs, and we need to think about why it was the ascension of Jesus, more than anything else that was the penny-dropping moment for them, and the moment that gave them the greatest joy. All right, so I have three ideas for this, three possible reasons why the ascension gave them joy. The first is that the ascension was something like inauguration day for Jesus, inauguration day. So the resurrection was kind of like winning the election, and the ascension was like getting sworn in. Okay, and if you've had the experience of really wanting to elect a certain candidate to be president, and then seeing that person win, you know that it's not just election day that's a great day, but inauguration day is a great day too, in a different way. Because it's the day that your guy takes power. It's the day the reins fall into good hands. It's a day that marks the start of all kinds of positive change. And Ascension Day was that kind of day for the disciples of Jesus. Because Jesus wasn't just leaving the earth, he was entering heaven. And they knew he was going there to take his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus was leaving so that he could be crowned king. And not some distant, faraway king of a distant, faraway land, but their king of their land. He was going to rule the earth for their good. He was going to intercede at his father's throne on their behalf. And he was going to give them his Holy Spirit and all the gifts that they'd need to serve him. So Jesus was taking over the reins, and that was the first big reason to get excited. But second... The ascension was also something like graduation day for the disciples. So uh, those of you who've spent a lot of years in school know that graduation day is a great day. 
It's a throw your hat in the air kind of day. It means that the long, hard work of learning is over and a new life of doing is about to begin. And on graduation day, your teachers are always there with you, right? Your teachers are there celebrating with you. It's a good day for them too. Um, and the message of your teachers is, I'm finished. That's what I had to say. I'm done talking now. It's over to you. You're ready to go. That's the message of the teachers on graduation day. And that's something like what Jesus was saying to his disciples by leaving them. He was saying, my part here is done. It's over to you now. And I don't know about you, but for me, it was about around the time of graduation day that the subject I had been studying became clear. <laughs> uh, something about finally getting to the end of the curriculum and being able to see it as a whole package made all the pieces like fall, in, fall to, uh, together and click into place. So getting to the end was like putting the last piece of a jigsaw puzzle in and finally getting to see the whole picture for the first time. And I think that might have been part of the joy of um, the ascension for the disciples too. Because at this point, they finally got to see what it was all about. They got to see the big picture. Jesus' departure made their job clear. And they rejoiced because they finally knew what they had to do. So that's two reasons to get excited. The ascension was both inauguration day and graduation day. But there's even a third, because the ascension was also something like engagement day. <laughs> Okay, Jesus made it clear all along that his disciples had to follow him. Okay, so his first words to most of them were, follow me. And he warned them about the reality of what following him would mean. That he was going to lead them into poverty, into humble service, and into crucifixion. Because the servant is not greater than the master. But now, here at the end, Jesus showed them where the path they'd been following led. And that it led them into glory. It led them into the sky. Into heaven with him. And even this part of the journey was one that they would someday follow. Because Jesus told them in John chapter 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. So Jesus is saying that his disciples get to follow him to his father's house. But he's saying it in the language marriage. Because in first century Israel, when a man got engaged to a woman, it was common practice for him to leave her with her parents for a while, while he went back home to his father's house to build on an extension to the house, to build on an extra room where he and his new bride were going to live together. And then when the room was finished, the man would come back and get his new bride, and they would be married, and they would go and live there. All right? That's the image that Jesus is using. He says, in my father's house are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. It's a message of engagement. It's stating an intention of marriage. 
And so the ascension is something like engagement day. And that means that they and we get to follow Jesus even in this last part of his journey of his life, even in his ascension. Our path following Jesus ends in the sky. And this, I think, is how we preach the gospel from the ascension, just like my retreat speaker wanted. How the ascension is good news for 21st century people, and not something to be sad about, and not something to be embarrassed about. Because actually the ascension is something that all our hearts long for, deeply long for, to climb, to ascend, to be lifted up. We share a common desire to get high, right? We all want to get high. And some of us climb the corporate ladder, and some of us climb the property ladder, and some of us build tall buildings, and some of us climb high mountains, and some of us fill up our pockets, and some of us make big rockets, and some of us build our reputations, and some of us seek chemical stimulations. But in our hearts, it's all the same. We all just want to be high. We all want to get high. And for most of the time, the people hear the Christian message and it's telling them to give up on that and stop climbing, right? We hear, we hear Jesus calling us to put this desire to death when he says, love your neighbor, serve the poor, take the lowest place, be the servant of all. But here in the ascension is food to satisfy our high, hungry hearts. We mustn't lift ourselves, but God will lift us up. He'll lift us right to his own side, right into his own house. And James says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. The Christian road ends in glory. It ends on the ultimate high, better than any elevation that we could reach for ourselves. So don't waste time building your puny tower of Babel when you could be following this road through the clouds. The disciples at the end of the story found three great big reasons for joy. The ascension was something like inauguration day, it was something a bit like graduation day, and something like engagement day. And that's where Luke leaves us at the end of his gospel. He ends it on a great big high. And he's got lots more to tell us, um, but he's going to save all of the rest for the second book, the book of Acts. And you'll be glad to know that we're going to be studying that together starting in the fall. We're going to take a break from Luke and then we're going to come back to Acts in the fall. But today, we've come to the end of our sermon series in Luke. We've been studying Luke together for nearly two years, verse by verse. Um, and so as we close, I want to... Um, I want to just celebrate Luke and the gift that Luke gave us in his gospel. Because Luke was a scholar, and he wanted to tell the story of Jesus through the eyes of lots of different people. And when Luke sat down to write his gospel, he'd almost certainly heard of and read the gospels of Matthew and Mark. Um, and he used them extensively in his own gospel, but he also saw that there was still much more to tell. There were lots of other sources to read and people to interview and stories that he wanted to include. And Luke included especially the stories of the more marginalized people, like the women in the story, like Mary and Elizabeth and Martha, and the Gentiles and the Samaritans and the Romans 
and the social outcasts like the tax collector. So without the Gospel of Luke, we'd know nothing about John the Baptist's parents, Elizabeth and Zechariah, or know the story of how John was born. Without Luke, we'd never have heard the Magnificat, or the Song of Zechariah, or the Song of Simeon, and there'd be no shepherds in our Christmas crash. We wouldn't know the story of 12-year-old Jesus in the temple. We wouldn't have heard how Jesus raised a widow's son to life in name. Without Luke, we have no record of Jesus' parables of the Good Samaritan, or the rich man and Lazarus, or the prodigal son. And we'd never have heard the story of Mary and Martha, or the cleansing of the ten lepers, or Zacchaeus coming to faith in Jericho, or the disciples meeting the risen Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Because of Luke's faithfulness, we can know Jesus better. And may that be said of all of our lives. And here's the bottom line that Luke would want us to take away from his gospel. The bottom line is joy. It's about joy. Right, so this note of joy is one of the first sounds that comes out of Luke at the beginning of his gospel. And it's the last sound of his gospel. And we hear it at many key points along the way. Joy. And Luke says that anyone, anyone can find joy. Because anyone can know Jesus. In the Broadway musical Wicked, Galinda, the good witch, sings, Happy is what happens when all your dreams come true. But in the song, she isn't really sure that she's right about that. But Luke is sure about this, that joy is what happens when people find themselves part of the saving mission of God. Joy is what happens when people find themselves part of the saving mission of God. And Jesus has opened that path of joy to everyone. 